If you have Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 is where we'll spend a little bit of time together uh, this morning. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that's in the rack under some seats right in front of you, uh, that's going to be on page 830 is where we'll be today. Um, as you're turning there, just a quick reminder as well. Uh, this is the last week for all uh, women who want to sign up for the Bible study this spring. Uh, you're going to be studying the book of Hebrews together. Uh, if you've not signed up for that yet, this is your last few days, last week to do that. Uh, there's a link in the weekly emails. There's also some information in your bulletin uh, about that. And if you are a male and would like to study the Bible, we believe that's important too. Uh, we're not quite as well organized as the women of our church in that front, uh, but we have a, a study, several groups gathering to study the book of Exodus together this spring. If you're interested in that, there'll be info uh, in this coming week's uh, weekly email and bulletin, a uh, place for you to sign up uh, for that. Five years ago, um, February 5th, it was actually February 5th also, five years ago, uh, of 2012, over at the Lemoyne Community Room, just a couple miles from here, we had our first ever morning worship service as Liberty Church. Uh, we had a little over 80 in attendance that day, many of which I think were just there uh, out of curiosity, uh, some of whom were just coming from other churches just to lend their support and their encouragement to us. And on that day, actually, it was a covenant entrance day as well. We welcomed our first 17 people into covenant, and we had the privilege uh, of baptizing three people. So today, as we're marking our five-year anniversary, uh, I've been thinking for a few weeks leading up to this about, you know, what really will capture and celebrate this moment well? And in praying and thinking and in reading and writing about that over these couple weeks, it's led to this one thought, that in all likelihood, we will not exist as a church in 100 years. In all likelihood, we will not exist as a church in 100 years. And that sounds like such a Debbie Downer thought, right? Everyone remember those Saturday Night Live sketches from a decade ago? It sounds like such a Debbie Downer thought. You might be thinking that that sounds a little bit dark for a church that's just turning five to start thinking about how it will probably cease to exist someday. Right? My oldest daughter turned four last week. I probably should have sat her down too and talked about the inevitability of, of death. <laughs> missed, missed parenting opportunity, for sure. But, it's, but for a church, it's, it's a reality. In all likelihood, we won't exist in 100 years. Somewhere around 4,000 churches closed their doors last year. Another 4,000 will this year. And depending on the variables and how long the studies are conducted, kind of the, the rates that they use there, the stats say that at least 33% and as many as 80% of church plants don't make it. So the fact that we have made it five years and that there are more than 75 people in regular attendance at our Sunday morning services and that we're financially self-sustaining, that means that on every front, we've far surpassed the statistics and the averages. So I don't see, thinking about the fact that we won't exist, I don't see that as a discouraging thought. Nor do I see it as some kind of existential crisis that leads me to think, well, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just do whatever we want because we may not exist tomorrow. Nor do I see it as an opportunity to freak out and do everything that I can in the years to come for the sake of self-preservation. Instead, I see this as one more reason to put my hope to put my trust, to put my dependence in the faithfulness of God. And as we're here together this morning, I'm calling you to do the same thing. To think about this with the same spirit that the psalmist prays in Psalm 90, where he prays that God would teach him to number his days so that he might gain a heart of wisdom. 
And what he prays as an individual, I want us to pray as a church, that we would together gain a heart of wisdom by numbering our days. And, and so that as we look then to this next year, or the next 5, 10, 20, 50, however many years we would have, that we would develop and continually pursue this single-minded focus of faithfulness to Jesus because he has been faithful to us. So in Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he's speaking to them about how to live, how to carry and how to con- conduct themselves during this delay between his first and his second coming. And he tells his disciples a parable about a property owner who entrusts three of his servants with portions of his wealth. Uh, You may be familiar with this. It's commonly referred to or known as the parable of the talents. And it's in Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. So follow along with me as I read and listen now with open ears to this book that we love. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug, it, dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the, se- the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you should ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Living God, help us to hear your word with open hearts so that we may truly understand. And understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Just a few uh, important points that will help us understand what's happening in this parable. The servants in this parable are bond servants, right? They're slaves. They're not co-owners of this property or of this man's wealth, but they are entrusted with significant portions of it. And that's really important for us to have as the foundation of this parable 
Because what these people, what these servants receive is not an entitlement, but rather a privilege that they are entrusted with. This question that the Apostle Paul asks, what do we have that we did not receive? That's the important question we have to begin this parable with. What do we have that we did not receive? Whenever we forget the givenness of what we have, we do foolish things with them. Sometimes recklessly foolish things with them and sometimes hoardingly foolish things with them. The servants here are given different amounts according to their ability, as it says in verse verse 15. So the master doesn't distribute his wealth with uniformity. And it's just like the Apostle Paul says elsewhere that that God grants faith and he grants grace in different measures. When he says that, that's never a statement about the worth or value of an individual. It's rather a statement that God gives different people different gifts. And you and I, I think, tend to get hung up on this, both individually and then as a church. Like, am I a five-talent individual? Or maybe I'm just a two-talent? Or, God forbid, maybe I'm just a one-talent individual or is our church a five-talent church or a a one-talent church? But what we see as this parable plays out is that our ability and the amount that we are given is not the point. The point is actually, and it's always, what do we do with whatever we've been given? Another thing quickly lost on us because we're so far removed from this cultural context is that a talent is a ton of money, right? A talent is the equivalent roughly speaking, of what a laborer would earn in about 20 years, half of their working life, right? So yes, five talents is a lot more than one talent, but one talent is still a substantial amount to be given, to be entrusted with. So let's not feel too much pity for the one talent servant just because there's a five, you know, the the one million dollar man just because there's a five million dollar man in the story as well. The master is gone a long time. That's what it says in verse 19. And that illustrates the delay in Jesus' return. We talked about this some during the Advent season, if you were with us uh, in those weeks. But this is always a tension for Christians. We are to expect Christ's coming at any moment, but at the same time, live and work the regular rhythms and routines of our lives. In parables like this, we see that there is time to use our lives and to use them well, to participate in the ordinary rhythms of life. These first two servants begin to trade with the talents they've been given, and they each end up doubling what they were given by the time the master returns. But this isn't Vegas, where they put it all on red and doubled it in like an hour. And this isn't the stock market, or this isn't venture capitalism, where they turned it around like in a year or two. Right? They set up some kind of business, and they work hard for a long time, as one scholar puts it, in a bold and enterprising way. And so what we have here in Jesus' parable is a call to both hard-working endurance combined with an everyday imminence, right? An everyday expectation that Jesus might come back now. And all of that lays the groundwork then to compare and contrast the responses of these servants. So the first two servants respond with faithfulness, and the third servant responds with fearfulness. And we'll just spend the rest of these couple minutes that we have together looking at both of those, and considering how we can pursue a faithful response together as a church, and at the same time, where we need to be cautious and aware of the temptations and the draw to fearfulness. So first, let's talk about the faithful response. Just as this master entrusts these servants with great sums of money, so Jesus entrusts us, you and I, with great responsibility. He entrusts to us our own lives, 
That's a bigger responsibility than sometimes we think it is. He entrusts us with material possessions and finances. Uh, He entrusts us with our abilities and with time. He entrusts us with the care of other people, be that family or friends or neighbors. All of these things that God entrusts to us, all of that is our gifts of God's grace. And what differentiates faithfulness from fearfulness is what we do with the things we've been entrusted with. So the faithful servants in this parable, they take what they've been entrusted with and they put it into action. They don't sit on it and hoard it. And to me, this this idea is really one of the most compelling things about the Christian faith, that the things that you and I do in this life The relationships that we form, um, the words that we speak, the work of our hands, the efforts of our vocations, that all of that is meant to be swept up into the cosmic, eternal, redemptive work of the God of heaven and earth. The story of our lives is not that there's this active God and passive, mindless, emotional drones that he acts upon. The story of our lives is that there's an active God who brings hard-hearted, dead people to life and then he makes them active participants in reconciling the world to himself. So we have the opportunity to use our lives to advance the kingdom of God. And when is the last time that you've really thought about that? That we have the opportunity to use our lives to advance the kingdom of God. And not only do we have the opportunity, but using our lives this way, taking what we have and leveraging that for the advance of the gospel, that's the only faithful response. And so a question for us to consider individually, are we using our lives? Am I using my life for its intended purposes? Am I using my life for the sake of God's kingdom? As you consider that individually, let me offer just a few celebrations of where I think together as a church we can say a wholehearted yes, we are seeing that happen here as a church in these five years. So we have, for five years now, gathered together every Sunday morning to enjoy and and share in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus. We have done that in response to what Jesus has done for us, his life and his death and his resurrection. We have met more than 260 times in four different places, and we've narrated the gospel through our liturgy, 260 plus times. We've sung nearly 1,300 songs and we've heard 260 sermons and we've come to Jesus' table 260 times. And through all of that, through the power and grace of God, we've been sustained, we've been renewed, we're being continually transformed. We've seen 27 people baptized in these five years. Right? We've celebrated the cleansing work of Jesus the the good news of the gospel being brought to bear on 27 souls, 27 image bearers of God, right? That is the kingdom of God at work among us. And we have also then pursued knowing and being known by one another. Five years ago, most of us in this room didn't know each other. Maybe pockets of us did, but many of us did not know one another. But many of us now, this morning, several years later, we have real and meaningful relationships within this church family. So those 260 times we've met for worship on Sundays, that pales in comparison to the hundreds of times that pockets of us have met in homes, for a home group or Bible study, for fun, for meals. Jesus has made and is making us into a community. And through love and affection that is ever growing for one another, through our presence in each other's lives, we've seen a lot of care and support and encouragement pass back and forth among us and between us through both joyful times and sorrowful times in life. 
We've served and we've put a lot of hours into serving together. I thought about trying to estimate the number of volunteer service hours that have been put into this church, but it quickly became evident that that wasn't really possible because it really isn't even the right metric just to count volunteer service hours, right? How do you count that? Because so many of you have given thousands of hours of your life to this church and to one another. And beyond just maybe the the service you've done in specific roles within this church, you've also given that many more hours to praying, to spending time with each other, to practicing personal rhythms of worship that sustain you as a follower of Jesus and make you a helpful and fruitful part of a church community. How does a church exist without all of that? So our volunteer hours certainly are not more important than our communion with Christ and our community with each other. And so to all of you, thank you for the life that you have poured out, the hours and energy you've poured out to be a church together. Those hours are not in vain. And in these last five years, we've given away more than $200,000 to church planting and ministries of mercy. Now that doesn't take into account also special offerings that have been taken and then finances that you've given outside of the church just to ministries or people that we have supported together. So we've given away a lot, which has been really encouraging to think about. We've partnered with local ministry partners and global ministry partners. We've been able to meet tangible needs. We've been able to meet spiritual needs. And beyond all that, there's the relationships, which we hardly ever get to see together when we're gathered. The relationships that you've pursued, the conversations that you've had, and the love that you've shown to the people that you live near. Or the people that that you work with or you go to school with. Right? In all of that, What we are doing is receiving mercy from God and we are putting that very same mercy into action by displaying it to the world around us. We're doing what the faithful servants in this parable do and we're taking what we've been entrusted with and we're using it for the sake of God's kingdom. So in all of those ways and in many more, we can rejoice that God is doing that good work here in us and through us. As we rejoice in that today, Let's also consider the fearful response of this third servant because we have been and no doubt we will be drawn into the same kind of fear that he embodies in this parable. Every time, and maybe this stands out to you too when you read it, every time I read this parable, it's striking to me that the third servant is called wicked. Does that stand out to anybody when we read this? The third servant is called wicked. This is not what we commonly equate with wickedness. He commits no egregious act. He doesn't do any harm to another person. In fact, he rationalizes burying this talent in the ground as the prudent choice. There were no banks in this day in the sense that we think of banks today. There were no safe deposit boxes. There were no FDIC-insured accounts. And so burying your money in the ground is actually one of the safest options. It's one of the best ways to ensure that that money will be there in, in the future. But what the third servant rationalizes as prudence, the master in verse 26 calls sloth or laziness. As one scholar puts it, his action is a picture of a religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong. A religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong. So we most often think about wickedness in terms of commission, right? The the evil things that we do or that others do. But the parable of the talent says wickedness is also about omission and the good things that we leave undone. A few years later, Jesus 
after Jesus speaks this parable, his brother James pens the same idea in his letter in James chapter 4. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it, it is sin. And here's the thing. That third servant knows. He knows. It says as much. He says as much. He knows the nature and character of the master. And that the last thing the master would want is for him to just sit on this wealth. But immersed in fear, the servant decides that his approach, his, his way of going about this is going to be better. And so he deliberately acts contrarily to the way the master would call him to act. And that's why the punishment is so harsh at the end of this parable. Right? The master commands that this third servant be cast into outer darkness, to be cast into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's the language that Jesus commonly uses in Scripture to describe hell or eternal separation from God. And what he's saying as he talks about this third servant is that to willfully neglect using what we've been given for the sake of God's kingdom, that is to reject God himself. It is to reject God's nature and his character and his purposes. For whatever, however wise the, the reasons might seem to us to do it a different way, to go our own way, is to reject God. So where are you prone to a fearful response like this? Where are you prone to wickedness by omission? Right? Or a religion that is concerned only with not doing anything wrong. As you consider that individually, it's also an important question for us to wrestle with together as a church. Right? We are not a church who in any way, shape, or form desires to reject God or God's kingdom or to, to go our own way and do our own thing. But where might we as a church be drawn into the very same kind of fearful response that this third servant embodies? Well, I think one area has to do with community. has to do with our relationships with each other. And I know many of you have felt this very acutely, but there is a tension that permanently exists in the relationships among a church family. And the tension is this. How do I pursue a depth of love and friendship with the people who are already here and at the very same time keep a place open in my life, a place open in my heart for those who are not here yet, but who we hope someday are here and are part of us. How do we do that? That's hard. Right? Especially if you've seen people who you love come and go from a church family. And if you've been here for most of these five years, then no doubt you have seen people who you love come and go. I know I have. And so maybe you can relate to me in this. For me, it's hard then to want to pursue depth of relationship with people when I'm wondering whether or not the person's going to be here in a year or two. And then when I do find some relationships with those who I think maybe will be here with me for the long haul, it's hard not to exclusively focus on those few relationships and then feel and come across as clickish to anyone else who's new and comes in. I think at any moment in our lives, we will do one of these things better than the other. But if this ever ceases to be a tension that we feel, then we are no doubt neglecting something. We're either neglecting true Christian community or we're neglecting hospitality. Right? We're either too comfortable being shallow and seeing people come and go on a whim or we're too comfortable having a few deep relationships and making it someone else's responsibility to welcome those who are new. And both of these things are rooted, are just different kinds of fear. They're both rooted in fear, just different kinds. 
One is the fear of losing something beautiful that you have. The other is a fear of truly being known. They're both just different ways of hunkering down, burying what you've been given in the ground, and not pursuing faithfulness to how God has called us to use our lives. So instead of that, I call us together as a church to live in the tension. Live in the tension. Pursue depth of love and care with the people who are already here. Keep a place open in your heart and your life for those who we hope God draws to himself someday, either because they don't know Jesus right now or they do and they just don't have a church community. The other place where it'll be tempting to respond with fear has to do with what we refer to often in this church as mercy or loving our neighbor, right? Being people who are present and loving those in this region and in this world. Having existed now for five years, having expended so much time and energy and emotion and finances and everything else that it takes to become a church, will we now become guarded and closed-handed? It happens all the time to churches who quote-unquote make it. Happens all the time to churches who get past the statistics of these first five years. So we'd be naive to think that the very same thing couldn't happen here. Will we stop giving money away? Will we stop seeking to, to see churches planted around this state and even more specifically in central Pennsylvania in the Harrisburg region? Will we start caring exclusively about our church programs and not also about being present and engaged in the public square? Will we want to partner with other organizations less because we become more and more concerned about doing our own thing our own way? I hope not. I hope not. But there are times when I feel fear and anxiety that make me want to live and act and lead in a very self-protective, close-handed way. And like this third servant, I like things that sound wise and I like to rationalize things as being prudent. It sounds a lot better to rationalize those things as being prudent rather than to call it out as the fear that it actually is. And that's why, just circling back to the beginning, that's why it's helpful for me to think that in all likelihood, we will not exist as a church in 100 years. Because it reminds me that though there is great work to go and do right now, it reminds me how little control you and I have and how little control you and I have had in these past five years. And that frees me to pursue a faithfulness that is only possible when fear isn't leading me away from the nature and the character and the purposes of God. And so the remedy to this fear, when it creeps up in my heart, when it creeps up in yours, is to remember that we are where we are solely because of the faithfulness of God. To remember that God is the one who has brought us together to this time and place. That God has given us our very lives. That God has established our steps and that he has made us a church family. The only reason that we have to gather together every week like we do, the only hope that we have in this world, is that we, like the servants in this parable, have been granted the wealth of God. We've been offered the riches of God's grace. And Jesus then, giving us the riches of his grace, has entrusted us with the work of his kingdom. So having received that, will we bury it in the ground? Or will we continue to pursue being Jesus' church? Will we use our lives individually and collectively for the sake of God's kingdom? Because my heart, and I pray that yours is too, is that we would be a church filled with people found faithful in response to the faithfulness of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you have done 
great things and our hearts are filled with joy. Uh, We are here this morning and just pausing to reflect and commemorate five years of gathering together. There's much to be done, but help us to be people who don't continually look past the good work you have done. Help us to be people who continually see in the past all of your faithfulness and that that would be just fuel for us to pursue faithfulness of our own in the days that follow. And I pray that as we come to this table, you would again today renew us in the finished work of Jesus. That his, Jesus, your death and resurrection is the only hope that we have in this world, is the only reason we have to gather to the only thing that we've been entrusted with worthy of using our lives in this way. And so by your spirit as we come to this table this morning, strengthen us and renew us in your grace. Send us out into this world that you love. We pray this in your name. Amen.